The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Latter-day Lives. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Sean Rapier. I am your host, and this is episode 13. And on the show today, we have got a tremendous guest. Uh, Jim Bennett is running for Congress in the state of Utah, and he is really shaking things up out there. Just an incredible guy. He Not only does he have his own political aspirations, he's also the son of former senator of the state of Utah, the late uh, Robert Bennett, very well-beloved and respected man. Uh, in politics, and boy, we have a great conversation. Jim is an incredible guy, and you're you're really going to love it. In the My Latter-day Life section, I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about uh, lifting others. And before we jump into the show, a couple of items of housekeeping. Uh, first of all, I want to give a special thanks to one of our listeners. I was out of town this weekend and checked in on Instagram to take a look at the Latter-day Lives page on Instagram. And one of our listeners, Ryan Snar, he goes by Snarly Illustrations. He had done an illustration of me, of the host, Sean Rapier, <laughs> uh, and had drawn it. And it's fantastic. It was so fun to see that. And he actually put it in front of the Latter-day Lives uh, logo and wrote a nice little piece about it. I shared it if you want to check it out. It's on our Facebook page and our Instagram page, and I have zero illustration uh, talent or skills whatsoever. Ryan, thank you again. That just made my weekend so fantastic. I'm so impressed. It's been really fun uh, since I've hosted the show. I only know Ryan through the show as we've interacted on social media and whatnot with him as a listener, and it's been so fun getting to know so many of you that I did not know before the show. So thank you so much, Ryan. That was just fantastic. One other item. Um, oh, well, I guess two other items. One is that uh, this week I'm going to be on High Five Live. I think it's going to be the day of the release of this podcast, Monday, uh, which will be whatever it is, the 16th, I think. But in any case, uh, I'm going to be on High Five Live on Facebook. If you get a minute to check it out, uh, Corey Andrews is who I've been talking to over at High Five Live. If you have not seen it, they do such an amazing job every single day. They've got a member of the church who just comes on and shares a, an inspiring story or some thoughts or whatever it is, just 5, 10, 15 minutes, and every day it is just awesome. And actually, some of our guests, uh, we've had uh, Jason Hewlett has been on it, and Clint Pulver, Stephen Jones, and and they're all on there. You can look up Hi, it's H-I-5 Live. I'll be doing it this week. I'm excited. So I appreciate that opportunity uh, to to share a few few minutes of positive thought. And then in our mailbag this week, uh, at least three messages I can think of, (laughs) whether they were emails, texts, or through Facebook, Clint Pulver really is that energetic. <laughs> Boy, there was a lot of reaction to Clint's uh, to Clint last week and to his message, and I just got such positive feedback on him. But the, the question came through in slightly different ways from from at least three different people I can think of. Is wow, is he really that dynamic? Clint is Clint. That's who he is. I'm sure he has his down moments too. But boy, he's inspiring and you can't help but feel good when you're around him. So thank you so much to Clint and thank you to all of you for listening. And without any further ado, here is this week's conversation. I'm very excited to have in studio with me. Uh, He is a, a household name. His last name is definitely a household name. Here in Utah, he uh, is a, a performer. He is all kinds of things. But right now, what he's doing most is running for Congress. And that's really exciting for us. Jim Bennett. Jim, welcome to the show. Very glad to be here. Yeah, well, we're, we're really excited to have you on. Now, uh, a lot of you here in Utah would know Jim now from the billboards. Right. Billboards and signs all over the place. All over the place. It's pretty exciting. But before before you got to know Jim... Uh, you more than likely, especially if you were here in Utah, 
uh, you got to know Jim's father. Tell us who your father was, Jim. Well, my father was Senator Robert F. Bennett. He passed away on May 4th, 2016. I can remember that because that was Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. <laughs> uh, but he's been gone for a little over a year now. I miss him every day. Gosh, I can't believe it's been that long already. Yep. I remember that, remember that very, very well. Yeah. yeah. So let's go, go back. We'll talk about your father uh, in a little more detail in a minute. But uh, on this episode, we're going to get to know Jim. And Jim, uh, tell, us, tell us where you were born and kind of where you were raised, a little bit about your family. Well, I was actually born in Washington, D.C., which always gave me a problem because I never had a home state. Hmm. People would say, you know, you have to fill out a form and it says city and state. And I write Washington, D.C., and then I think I'm never not able to fill out the rest of it. Because wa- Washington is a district. It's a district of Columbia. I was what? born in the Columbia Hospital for Women. And as a kid, I, that was also traumatic. I, you know, I wasn't a woman. <laughs> Why am I in a hospital for women? So, so you're a man without a state or a hospital. That's correct. The hospital's been torn down since, yeah. We moved to Southern California when I turned six years old. So yeah. I, I really grew up in Southern California, in Calabasas, yeah. home of the Kardashians. Calabasas, California. Calab- Massas, California. Yeah. How old were you? I mean, how long did you live in California? How, how many years? Well, uh, we moved there when I was six years old, and my family moved back to Utah in 1986, right after I graduated from high school. And I actually stayed in Los Angeles and went to the University of Southern California for my freshman year, and then I served a mission. I came home, and my, my family was in Salt Lake, and I went to the University for, of Utah for a year, hated it. And went back to went back to USC and graduated from the University of Southern California. And and how many siblings are you? Uh, there are six of us. I've got one brother and four sisters, mm. and we're scattered all over the place. My brother lives here in Utah with me, uh, not with me in my house, but in but Utah. Lives here in Utah. Lives here in Utah, and my four sisters are all over the country. Oh, and I actually, got great. one sister living in London right now. Oh wow! So. So six kids. How how old were you when your father ran for Senate? I was twenty four. Yeah. So uh, people don't realize, and they all assume that I grew up in Utah, and they assume that I grew up in this political family. My grandfather was a senator for 24 years, but he retired when I was six years old. So I don't have any memory of my grandfather as a senator, although I do have a lot of, you know, he would tell stories later on in my life, but, I, but uh, he was retired from the Senate by the time I really got to know him. So, so since you jumped in with your grandfather, we've got your father, who was Senator Bob Bennett. Right. Very well respect. I mean, like so well respected. We have a lot of listeners outside of Utah, but I mean, they would know him. He was big on the national stage anyway, but here in Utah, I mean, just a revered man. Your grandfather was Senator Wallace, Wallace Foster Bennett. Correct. Yeah. So he was a senator. Who was your great grandfather on your father's side? My father's side, uh, President Heber J. Grant yeah. was my maternal, his maternal grandfather. So yeah. my great grandfather. Yeah. And not many names bigger in the church than than uh, than Heber J. Grant. Sure, I named my son after Heber J. Grant. My, oh. my, one, we have twin boys, and one of them is named Jetty. That was Heber J. Grant's middle name. Oh, I didn't know that. Heber Jetty Grant. His, Heber Jetty Grant. Well, his father was Jedediah Grant, yeah. and everybody called him Jetty. And uh, Heber J.'s mother hated the name Jedediah, but loved the name Jetty, so named Heber Heber Jetty. Does your son ever tell people it's Jedi? Uh, no, well, it's not spelled Jedi, but a lot of people assume it's Jedi. And so he's, he, he's used that to run for class office and stuff like that. But, uh, so it's Jetty. So we've got Heber J. Grant was your great grandfather. You also have a great grandfather. I did a little bit of your family history today. Oh, thank yeah, you very it was, much. It was great. Uh, <laughs> you've got, uh, Jedediah M. Grant, Daniel, Daniel H. Wells. Yeah. That's the story I tell on the campaign trail all the yeah. time. Yeah. Go ahead. I, it's, you know, this, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's been told in the family forever. Daniel H. Wells, he was the first, um, third mayor of Salt Lake City. So he third was the mayor. first, yeah. So he was the first politician in the family, really. Wow. But prior to um, joining the church and coming west with the saints, he was a uh, practicing attorney in Illinois at the same mm. time as Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Yeah. And so the story goes that he met Abraham Lincoln and he walked up to him and he said, you, sir, are a dead man. For I swore to myself, if I ever met a man who was uglier than I was, I would shoot him on sight. (laughs) (laughs) To which Abraham Lincoln replied, shoot away. If I'm uglier than you, I don't want to live. No, come on. Well, well, my uncle was telling me that story as he was saying, you know, you look an awful lot like Daniel H. Wells, Jim. So... So I tell that story. And so you were ready to shoot your uncle at that point. No, 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 yeah. no. It's a great story. I tell it uh, all at every campaign stop. Every, oh, I love really that story. story. 
I really hope that's true. I really hope it is, too. Fantastic story. I think I may be mixing it up. It may have been Abraham Lincoln that said that to Daniel H. Wells first, but I don't know. It's much Uh, better. That is a great story. So he became a mayor, and Jedediah M. Grant also was a mayor. Was he? I think he probably was. Both of them were in the first presidency. And both were in the first presidency. That's what I was going to say next. So you've got this just incredible lineage. On your mother's side, who is your great grandfather? Oh, well, the one you're thinking of is David O. McKay. David O. McKay. Mother's grandfather. Uh I mean, this is just this incredible lineage that has all led up to Jim. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, (laughs) well, that was a real, um, I don't know how to describe it, Uh, just a lot to live up to as a a kid. I thought, well, he was David O. McKay, and I'm just this schlub Jim Bennett. Mm. And uh, I remember I served my mission in Scotland, which is where the McKays came from. And I actually served in the northernmost point of the Scottish mainland up in the town called Thurso, which was Mm. where actually my McKay ancestors joined the church. And it's a tiny little, the, the, the house where they joined is still sort of standing. It's a stone croft and the wooden roof is caved in, but uh, went and took my picture with it uh, when I was on my mission over there. Uh, is it but, somewhat of a church historical site there? Like, not, well, like people know it? Nobody goes to Thurso. It's just such mm. a tiny, tiny town, uh, far removed from anything. But any member of the church that goes up there yeah. uh, usually gets directed to the Mackay Croft. Is what they call it. Mackay. Mackay Croft. I do a pretty good Scots accent. That's incredible. That's 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 right. That's a great Scottish accent. Thank you very much. I got to spend some time in Edinburgh. 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 I got to spend some time in Edinburgh. And uh, and then I've spent a lot of time in China. I don't speak Chinese, but I think I understood the people in China just as well (laughs) as I did the people in Edinburgh. Yeah, you you get the experience in Scotland of of feeling like you have learned a foreign language, (laughs) even though they're all speaking speaking English. No question. No question. Tell us about growing up. What was your family like? Uh, Well, my family, so uh, we were far removed from this whole sense of royalty or Mormon royalty. I was going to say, you know, my mission, one of the great things that happened is they sent me a copy of David O. McKay's missionary journal. Mm. And one of the things that was really remarkable to me is that he really wasn't a very good missionary <laughs> to begin with. He was very frustrated. He was homesick. He missed his girlfriend, who he eventually married. And that was actually a real testimony builder for me because yeah. I thought, you know, I'm the schlub Jim Bennett, but he was once the schlub David O. McKay. Yeah. And if he was able to go from there to become president of the church, then maybe there's hope for me too. I get glimpses of that in almost every conference. Where, I I mean, I remember at one point, I believe it was President Hinckley who was talking about how he was frustrated about going home teaching, and he knelt down to to ask for forgiveness for home teaching, you know. And I thought, it's wonderful to see those things. Well, I mean, he wasn't a bad guy. No, of course not. He was just, but he was, every missionary goes through those kinds of things. Every one of us. We all all went through it. And so it's nice to know that the prophets did too. And your dad was a very successful businessman prior to Eventually. Yeah. (laughs) Well, dad's career, it was really, really colorful. That's the the only word to describe it. Uh, when when he was elected to the Senate, my mother said, do you think you can stick it out for the full six years? Because he'd never held a job for longer than three or four years. Uh, he um, he was a successful PR guy back in D.C. Yeah. And uh, But it, 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 during the Watergate scandal, uh, he was actually implicated. The White House said, no, 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 we didn't have anything did to do with that. this. It was this... Nixon zealot Bob Bennett and his PR firm that orchestrated all this. Go talk to them. And he was he had to testify before grand juries. He was investigated up, down, and sideways. And he came out with a clean bill of health because abs- actually it was the White House. It wasn't yeah. my father that had orchestrated the break-in. But, sure. But um, that, that essentially ended his political career for decades. Hmm. Uh, his PR firm went bankrupt. And we moved, to, we moved to California. Uh, he got a job as the PR guy for Howard Hughes. Yeah. Did he ever meet Howard Hughes never, in person? Never, never met once. Him. Howard Hughes's entire inner circle were Mormons. They were the only people he trusted. Really? Yeah. It's, I had no idea. It's bizarre. I mean, Howard Hughes was a strange dude. Yeah. I've, uh, seen, I've seen the movie about his life, The Aviator. The Aviator, yeah. Uh, which da- was a Dad great said film. that that was, that was uh, 
they sort of compressed the time frame. He mm. didn't get quite that nuts that quickly. Yeah, it was later. It was later when he was, you know, living alone in, in mm. movie theaters and, you know, doing yeah. other things. Sure. Uh, but, um, but no, dad was the PR guy for Howard Hughes. And then when Howard Hughes died, uh, nobody knew where they'd put the will and he lost his job there and he ended up being the PR guy for the Osmonds during the Donnie and Marie <laughs> show years. Wow. That's a great gig. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great so gig big. until the show was canceled. Yeah, sure. Which was just a couple of years later. And so he, uh, he then sort of tried to be a startup entrepreneur and mm. he started up a company called American Computer, which you have never heard of because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It didn't really exist then either. <laughs> Uh, but I've, I've had a few of those companies. But uh, yeah, he was he was flailing back and forth and trying to start up a bunch of things, and and uh, uh, we did we had some very lean years while he was going through all of that. But uh, he eventually landed in a startup uh, that uh, was at the time was called the Franklin Institute, right? And they started uh, what's now the company is now Franklin Covey, and it's a very different company now than when my yeah. my father was there, but. Back back then, they made their fortune with the Franklin Day Planner. You remember? Yeah, they, they made were, a fortune off me. Oh, I don't know why they were two hundred dollars, but they were. Yeah, and I bought them. And so did my yeah. wife. I mean, I don't know really anyone. expensive calendars. Yeah, I don't know anybody who didn't have a Franklin Planner at some point. Everybody had them at some point. They don't sell them anymore. I don't yeah. think they sell them anymore. I, I don't ever see people with the paper ones yeah. anymore. I remember you'd, you'd get looked down at if you had the at a glance. The at a glance was the Walmart version of the Franklin Planner. Right, right. So you really moved up when you had the Franklin Planner. So he was doing PR for Franklin. No, he was he was actually the CEO of Franklin. He oh, was I the wasn't first, aware of that he was the first CEO of Franklin. Wow. By that point, he'd sort of made the tradition from being a PR guy to being a manager. Yeah, and so he was the first CEO of Franklin, and it, it was the, in, in the year. He got that job. He was essentially commuting from Los Angeles to Salt Lake mm. because I was finishing my last year of high school and my sister was finishing her last year of middle school and my twin sisters were finishing their last year of elementary school. Mm. And so he said, rather than uproot the family during all yeah. of that, I want to wait until all my kids can make this transition. So he lived a really transient life that year just to just for the kids. And we didn't appreciate it at the time, just <laughs> just what kind of a sacrifice he was making. But That's great. What was your dad like? Like I've I've got to meet your dad uh, a couple of times. In fact, doing stand up once, I got to have your dad on stage. Oh yeah, me. I was there. I yeah, saw. Yeah, you that. were there for that. You made yeah. him wear a silly hat. Yeah, I made him wear a hat and be one of the village people. That's and right. You know he... what I loved is your dad jumped into that <laughs> and was so great and so gracious on stage with me. Well, he he always says the first rule of politics is ne- is never allow yourself to be photographed with a funny hat or with a drink <laughs> in your hand. <laughs> So the fact is that you got him to violate one of his first rules. So I and, think you should be proud of that. But he was so generous that night and so great and came up to me afterward. And, and uh, there was, uh, I'm not going to say any names. There was another politician there that Another night senator, perhaps? That uh, I will not say any names. <laughs> That's Who funny. was far less gracious. <laughs> sure. So sure. I really appreciated your father. Um so when, when your dad decided to run for Senate, you were already 24. I was 24. Uh-huh. So what, what what did you think of that at the time? I was thrilled. I yeah. thought it was really exciting. I, I volunteered for the campaign. I was stuffing envelopes. I had a low-level position as the guy who putting up signs and doing all the dirty work. But And this uh, is this is uh, pre-internet. Definitely pre-internet, 1992. Yeah. You're out. Everybody who can do math can figure out how old I am now. Literally shaking hands and kissing babies. Right. I mean, it's that, that type of campaign. It absolutely was. Yeah. And uh, he, the first poll that came out had him at 1% <laughs> and had Joe Cannon, his primary opponent, at something like 62%. Wow. And he was able to whittle that down, and and he did these really remarkable ads that we call Bennett in Your Face ads. Mm. That just initially he had a, a, a media guy who wanted to film these TV ads that were just really right up close and personal, and and the media guy had written all the ads, and Dad said, I, "This doesn't sound like me. I can't read these." And finally, the guy said, "Well, if you want to write them yourself." So he did. He wrote every single one of those ads himself. And wow. they were all, when you got to see him right up close and personally and talking just straight from his heart from from the things that mattered to him, it was very compelling. And people really can really attribute the success mm. of his campaign, that first campaign to those ads. Well, one of the things that, that I read that impressed me when I was kind of doing some cursory reading about your dad 
is I, I read in four or five different places that he was well liked. And I thought that that, you know, especially in Washington, and he didn't leave all that long ago. I mean, Washington Well, seven was, years, but that's was, an eternity in politics. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. Washington was certainly already at each other's throats for the parties and everything else. And yet it said universally well-liked and universally well-respected. And I remember when your father passed away, the sound bites that they got from, I mean, you know, your father was a Republican, right. well-known as a conservative Republican. Right. And yet you'd have all of these uh, senators and congressmen, whoever it was, talking about him in these glowing terms. Well, I, I spoke at his funeral. In Wa- he had two funerals, one in Washington and one in, in Utah. And I spoke in the Washington funeral. And I, I was followed by Senator Mitch McConnell, the hmm. Republican majority leader, and Senator Harry Reid, oh, then yeah. the Democratic minority leader. He had a very good relationship with Harry Reid, who's also a member of the church. Yeah. Dad said he would always defend Harry Reid to people who would say, well, you can't be a Democrat and good Mormon at the same time. And he said, <laughs> Harry Reid is the best home teacher in the church. That's how he would describe Harry Reid. Uh, that's but awesome. But he had, he had a great relationship with people on both sides of the aisle. One of his very close friends was Joe Biden. And they would talk religion on the floor of the Senate. Oh, really? Joe Biden is a very devout Catholic. Yeah. Dad tells the story that at one point some bishop said, we need to excommunicate all of the pro choice Catholics in the Senate, and we start with Joe Biden. And they said, well, why start with Joe Biden? And they said, because Joe Biden is the only one who would care. <laughs> Joe Biden was a, is, is yeah, a is, really yeah. devout, faithful Catholic, and they would trade books. Joe Biden called dad bishop. How oh, you doing, really? bishop? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, dad would give him Mormon books, and Joe Biden would give him Catholic books. I can remember dad with his nose buried in a book saying, where'd you get that? And, oh, Joe Biden gave it to me. It's not very good. I, I, I told him I'd read it, and, you know. Uh, uh, amazing. So how much of watching your dad influenced this, uh, whatever it is compelling you to get into <laughs> politics now? I can't, think of, the right, I can't think of the right word for it, this uh, impulse, Compul- this desire, uh, 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 yeah, compulsion? This, yeah, there, I don't know if there are any delicate words. Yeah, I don't it. think there are. Uh, no, I thought that my, my, I mean, my, my um, foray into politics initially I sort of backed into it. I, I certainly worked on my father's campaigns, but mm. at the time I, I was studying to be a world famous actor at, yep. at the University of Southern California, and uh, I, I ended up running theaters. I was a manager of a theater in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for five years. I was the marketing and artistic director of the Tuacon Center for the Arts down in Southern Utah for five years. For our listeners outside of Utah, Tuacon is just an incredible place. There's a a uh, high school for the performing there arts is. there also. And I was the first principal of that high school for Were two you really? well, for two weeks until we could find a real principal. <laughs> so uh, but I taught a- I taught at that high school. I, I, I helped I helped essentially launch the, the first it, it's the first charter school in the state of Utah. Oh wow. See, and it's a working it's a working high school, but then there's a professional theater there. Right. And it's set it's an outdoor theater set against the Red Rocks. When it's not 120 degrees out there. Oh, it's, it's never not 120 degrees out there. Well, what there, was amazing to me is, because we spend a lot of time in St. George, they would put on shows like Cats. Right. And I go, you're, you're doing a matinee of Cats, 110 degrees outside. I don't know that the they fur, ever did a matinee. For suits. Yeah, but, uh, uh, with the students. They would oh, do some the of the student things out there. But, oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, it's but it's just a beautiful theater. Let's backtrack a little bit and talk uh, a little bit more about your, your family. Tell sure. us a little bit about your wife and your kids. My wife is the former Laurel Sidwell. We've been married for 23 years uh, this month, last month. We celebrated our 23rd anniversary last month. Um, She is a physical therapist. We met when we were team teaching gospel doctrine at the student ward at the University of Southern California. Nice. Uh, She's from Port Angeles, Washington. Uh, So we go up there. Uh, it's, it's, It's where you catch the ferry to go to Canada, to go to British Columbia, and it's a really beautiful country up there. We go up there every year. Uh, we have five children. Our, our oldest is a junior at BYU. She's a biology major. Uh, mm. Our second oldest is a freshman at BYU, and she hasn't declared a major yet. Uh, and then we have twin boys who are 16 years old. And one of them's Jetty. The other one is Sam. And then we have a... Uh, we don't know how he got here, but we're glad he's here. Uh, four <laughs> years later, we have a, we now have a 12-year-old boy, Jamie. He's That's great. James Richard. And uh, we uh, they're great kids. They're also all athletes, which makes me wonder who their real father is. <laughs> 
but uh, they're Don't really. Don't you love that? Yeah, they're 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 just really really good kids, and uh, and yeah. we I the my family is. I'm just amazed because I think my kids would be great kids even if they were orphans. I, I, They're just that that great of – they've got the DNA. Well, well they've got the – I don't know what it is, but uh, it's not necessary – it doesn't have anything to do with me. So. No, no. It's, it's – what a blessing to have such a big family. So going back, you were you were doing all this theater stuff. This is what your training was. Right. Um, when you were at uh, USC, you graduated from USC. You eventually then went on to get a master's degree. Right. Well, I got an MBA from BYU Yeah. Uh, because it became very clear that if I wanted to feed my very big family, I needed to figure out what to do for a living. And, uh, and managing theaters is certainly more profitable than acting in theaters, but not a whole lot more profitable. Yeah. I mean, it's a really difficult way to make a living. And I uh, decided I wanted to, to develop my management skills. I wanted to have a credential that had a little, little bit of substance behind it. And so I went back to school and got an MBA. Yeah. And it's, it comes across in your writing. You've been, you've been writing blogs for how long now? How many years have you well, been Well, my, my official blog has kind of gone by the wayside as I've started campaigning, but I started it, I launched it 10 years ago. So 10 years ago. So your blog, your former blog. Well, was, I, I think I'll get back to it when the campaign's so, over. So tell us what the blog is called, because I've always wanted to ask you. I've read, I've probably read a hundred of your articles. Oh, thank you. But, uh, but, but the, tell the us title the name of it. Well, the title, it actually didn't get past the BYU filter. I, I, was down, I was down applying for a job at BYU once, and they said, do you have any writing samples? And I said, go visit my blog. And they said, my, the BYU it won't let us open it. They think it's not, it's not an appropriate site. <laughs> because the name of the blog is stallioncornell.com. Yeah, and uh, and it's still up. People can. It go, is still up. Yeah, I, I'm very proud of it. Your there's, there's a lot of stuff on it. There's nothing inappropriate. It's on very it. clever. You're a very clever. Like you're a very tongue in cheek. I've gotten to know you a little bit, and you have this great sensibility of this just sly tongue in cheek, dry humor that comes right. through in the blog. Well, good. I'm glad and, that comes. And through. up with the Stallion Cornell name. Who's well, uh, Stallion Cornell? So I was in a show when I was 16 years old. And I was the narrator of the show, and it was it was sort of a, a nascent kind of stand-up opportunity. And so I was trying out material, and I would always come out. I was very solemn, and I sat in this chair, and I'd always introduce myself with a ridiculous and silly name. Yeah. And I can't remember any of the others, except for the night I came out and said, my name is Stallion Cornell. <laughs> Which is, this and is the, very Steve Martin, by the very way. Very Steve Martin, very Steve I guess. Martin. But the place just erupted in laughter. And I thought, that's the funniest name in the world. Stallion, Stallion Cornell. Cornell. Doesn't mean anything. I didn't go to Cornell. I did, you know, I don't know if I was thinking of the Italian Stallion from yeah. Rocky or whatever. But but so that just sort of became my pen name over the years. And when Stallion I, Cornell. Stallion Cornell. And when I decided to launch a blog, I mean, what else was I supposed to do? So it's stalliancornell.com. And if I'm not mistaken, the accompanying image is Yul Brenner? Is Yul Brenner? Well, that's the that's the kind of mock seriousness that yeah. that was present when Stallion Cornell was born, and he was yeah. yeah. I've taken that down now. It's now it's a picture of me because I'm trying to be respectable. Yeah. So although Yul Brenner, I think, is probably the coolest bald guy who has ever lived. Not to mention outside of Stallion Cornell, the name Yul Brenner. Yes, that's an awesome name. That is an awesome name. <laughs> yes, it's a Stallion Cornell esque yeah. name. I always so. enjoy reading your writing. So well, and I I've been writing for the. They won't let me write for them now, but for the past five years, I've been a columnist for the Deseret News, uh, a media columnist. They uh, I don't focus on politics. It's been primarily you know pop culture stuff. Sure. Uh, they initially came to me and they said, we want you to write a column uh, about values in the media. Mm. And they said, we've had a lot of people try this and it always sort of degenerates into an anti-pornography column. Mm. And not that, the, you know, there's anything wrong with an anti-pornography column, but that you, you can't sustain that. It's just it, 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 it becomes one note over, over yeah. time. Uh, but I've also been an editorial writer for the Deseret News. So when you read uh, the editorials, and I, I was never allowed to say which ones I wrote, but you read the editorials that are the, the position of the paper. You know, in our opinion, we at the Deseret oh, News right. believe that whatever. And uh, I would write about two of those a week. And I'd say, can I tell people which ones I wrote? No, 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 no. No, it has to be from the paper. From we the paper. The board. So I used to post them on Facebook and say, you know, somebody brilliant some must have written this. Some, some genius really has written this. smart guy. 
and and so I would post those. But I, so I I had been doing that for the past five years. But when I became a political candidate, they said we we can't have you do that anymore. My father wrote a book of his own called Leap of Faith: Confronting the Origins of the Book of Mormon. Oh wow! That drew on a lot of the stuff that he'd done with Howard Hughes. It, uh, uh, he was involved with Howard Hughes when there were th- this guy decided to write Howard Hughes' autobiography for him. I don't know if you remember that. It's a, no. There's a Rick, Richard Gere movie called Hoax about it. No, no. A guy named Clifford Irving wrote, a, wrote the autobiography of Howard Hughes because Howard Hughes had gone into exile or yeah. he was a recluse. Nobody saw him. Sure. And so he said, well, I've been secretly meeting with him and I wrote his auto- and he's, I've been writing his autobiography with him. And he got a million dollar advance for it. And dad and the other Hughes executives were saying it's not true, but it didn't matter because Howard Hughes was totally silent. Yeah, if he on liked it. it, then great. And, and, and anyway, uh, Howard Hughes it was the last time I think Howard Hughes spoke to the public. He didn't come out of seclusion, but he he held a press conference by via phone, via speakerphone back before speakerphone was really a thing, and uh, to denounce the book. And it was exposed as a hoax. But he went through and he said, "This is how hoaxes work. This is how frauds work. And this is why the Book of Mormon." Isn't a fraud, and he, and so he was scheduled to give a fireside on the tenth of April. Your dad was. Uh, my, my dad was scheduled to give a fireside in, in his in his ward in Arlington, Virginia, and he kept saying, "I have to stay alive for the fireside." He had he mm. had pancreatic cancer that we he, he, we knew he didn't have long with him, and uh, so he says, "I've got to stay alive for the fireside," and he he gave a. Stood for an hour and a half and gave wow. this fireside and used no notes. One of the great things about my father is he never spoke with notes. He just sort of, it all just kind of came out and it was all there mm-hmm. and you could tell how. And so I've tried to to imitate that with uh, mixed results hmm. over my life. But anyway, he gave this fireside and the next day he had a stroke and he was gone three weeks later. Incredible. So. what a What a moving experience. I mean, to be able to stand... And kind of give the last right, last testimony, right? You know? And uh, somebody recorded it. I wasn't, together. I wasn't there, but somebody recorded the audio of it, and I transcribed it after he died and posted it on my site. Ah, that's awesome. I'll have to look that up because I, I had not seen that. So let's jump from your dad's political life and everything else. I, I want to hear about this uh, leap to to run for Congress. Sure. We recently it was announced that a seat was going to be opening up in right. Utah. Right. Yeah. And so you hear about this and just said, oh, well, that's me. No. Instantly. Instantly <laughs> yeah. you said, I've been called to it. No, it, 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 that, that's about as, as far as, from as what far actually from happened. Is, so how did this come about? Well, I was a political operative, essentially. I don't know of any delicate way to put it. But um, uh, working at Tuacon in 2004, I, I got a uh, Fred Lampropoulos, who was one of the Board members at Tuacon decided to run for governor and asked me to work on his campaign. And I ended up writing for, I was his communications director. I wrote a radio show for him. I wrote. He did oh, the, uh, did he do the speaking on business? No, but it was the same kind that of same thing. Same kind of thing, It was, right? this is yeah. Fred Lampropoulos. Here's something I thought you might like to know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I wrote sure. all of those or most of those. Fred wrote some of them, but I, I ended up writing, um, he got too busy. I ended up writing all of them near the end. And, um. And uh, that sort of launched me into Republican politics, and I started running campaigns for a number of people for state races. Uh, I was Orrin Hatch's webmaster in 2006. Mm. I ran a transit initiative in Salt Lake City. And, I, you know, so I was sort of this campaign operative guy. And then in 2010, I got a call from my father's campaign chairman and said, we'd like you to run your father's reelection campaign. Wow. And I thought, well, you know, if I lose this campaign – I'm going to feel guilty for the rest of my life. And I'm pleased to say I haven't felt a moment's worth of guilt <laughs> since he lost. I, I don't know what else we could have done. Yeah. Because to his credit, as the Tea Party was sort of deciding that he wasn't a pure enough Republican, yeah. we were kind of leaning on him to say, Dad, you need to change your positions. And he said, no, this is who I am. And if they don't like it, mm. I won't be a senator. They didn't like it, and he wasn't a senator. That was and he a very was, volatile time in, in politics. Oh, yeah. Very volatile. Very volatile. And But the thing is, he lost that election and went on to live another six years of the happiest years of his life. Yeah. He really enjoyed his life after the Senate. And mm. what was really inspiring to me was that the Senate didn't define who he was. Yeah. That his perception of himself and his perception of his purpose uh, wasn't tied to the office that he held. And so, uh, you know, he, he was, 
you know, his efforts with the church. I mean, that that, that book and other kinds of things that he was doing, those were more important. What a blessing. So, so, so I thought my well, and then <laughs> after my father lost, I got a call from the Democrat who was running, saying, "Will you come talk to me?" And I said, "Sure, I'll come talk to you." And I went and talked to him, and I said, "Well, I'd much rather you were the senator than the other guy running." And he says, "Well, will you come work for me?" And I said, well, I think that might embarrass my father. And they said, we well, don't need to tell anybody. We'll just do this under the radar. And of course, that lasted for about a week before I got a call from the Salt Lake <laughs> Tribune that says, we know you're working for the campaign. We're going to run a story about it. Do you Son want- of Senator Bennett. Well, there was a front page headline in uh, the Utah section of the mm. Deseret News that said, Bennett backs blue. And what a scandal, you know, and I... And I you know, you spend so much time in politics, you start to think of the other side not just as wrong, but as evil. The enemy. They are the enemy and they need to be destroyed. And going to work every day during that campaign and looking up at the wall with donkeys on the wall instead of elephants on the wall, <laughs> you start to realize that that tribal relationship to politics uh, really doesn't help anybody. Yeah. And these are good people who may have different policy ideas than, than I do or somebody else does. But they're not the enemy. We need to be able to talk to each other across party lines. Well, after that experience, my essentially my professional career in politics was over. Right. Uh, I, I've been running a nonprofit for the past several years called Real Victory that teaches a cognitive behavioral model to probationers and parolees to reduce recidivism in the criminal justice system. Mm, awesome. So I, I hadn't been really focused in politics at all. I, you know, I, I mentioned it on my blog here and there, but I just, I, I'm a hobbyist. I'm dabbling yeah. in it. And by the time Donald Trump uh, secured the Republican nomination, you know, for years and years, I've been called a rhino. We're Republican in name only. And when Donald Trump secured the nomination, I thought, you know, I don't even want to be a Republican in name anymore. And mm. so I changed my voter affiliation to unaffiliated. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it necessarily other than, okay, I don't have to defend the Republicans when they do something I don't like. I, you know, when you're tribally connected to your party. Yeah, you have to. My, you know, my country right or wrong kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I didn't feel that anymore. And so I got a call from Richard Davis, who was the head of the Utah County Democratic Party, who had become increasingly frustrated with where the Democrats were going in Utah. You know, Democrats haven't won a statewide race in over 20 years. Yeah, And you'd think that that would teach them, oh, well, let's reach out to the middle and see what we can do to become more attractive to voters. It's done precisely the opposite. They become more and more left-wing to the point where all they want to do is make a statement. They don't really want to win an election. They know they're not going to win, so let's make a statement and let's, you know, let's, let's be ideologically pure. And, and a lot of Republicans have responded to this by entrenching on the equal opposite side right. of, well, you're that hard left. Look at how hard right I am. There's not a lot of middle in Utah no. politics. Well, th- there's a lot of middle in Utah voters and in Utah, Utah citizens. people for sure. But but, but in yeah. the politics, it's... well, the Republicans say, well, we can do whatever we want. You know, yeah. we can nominate somebody as far right as we want because after what what choice do you have? You're not going to vote for a Democrat, so what choice do you have? So this was Richard Davis's frustration. He called me and said, "Would you be interested in talking to us about a third party that would be a moderate party, a centrist party?" They'd done some research to see just how much demand there was for a moderate centrist party. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And, and we got, I got involved in this, and they ended up hiring me as their first executive director of the mm. party. Uh, but all of this happened long before Jason Chaffetz decided he wasn't going to run again and then decided to resign before his term was over. Yeah. And so we got word that Jason Chaffetz was was not going to run again. We didn't know that he was going to resign. Which surprised a lot of people. A lot of people. Well, I mean, that, that, that surprised, I mean, I, I remember, I'm a bit of a political news junkie. Right. And I remember that day, that was all the talk in national news was, oh right. my goodness. Right. And everybody was speculating why. I think Jason, you know, my speculation is that when I was in Republican politics, he was the rock star. Yeah. You know, he'd walk into a convention and this was the guy. Sure. And, and, uh, then when Obama left and you had a Republican president and his constituents were saying, well, are you going to hold Trump accountable the same way you held Obama and Hillary Clinton accountable? I don't think it was anywhere near as much fun because he'd walk into a room and he'd have people confronting him. It's a tough time right now. And and it's, it's a difficult thing. So, but anyway, uh, we looked at that and said, well, we should run a candidate. And, and I was charged with trying to find some candidates to run. We were talking to all kinds of people. And eventually I finally said, look, 
if, if our party is going to succeed and if our party is going to have an impact here, we need to run a credible candidate. Yeah. And uh, I said, what if I were the candidate? I just sort of threw that out at one of the meetings and everybody responded very positively to it. And, uh, and that's, I, I sort of backed into it, <laughs> but it's been a really remarkable experience on a number of levels. The state didn't want me to run. The state wouldn't accept my ballot application. So, so that was a big story here in Utah is that you went in to turn in your application to run. Right. And they almost didn't know what to do with you. Like they almost threw be... me out on my ear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was the most bizarre experience. I actually watched the video of it. Yeah. Of you trying to say, I would like to run for office and them going, um, well, well they, uh, no, is it, are you a Democrat or a Republican? It was almost like, we don't know how to process this unless you're going to tell us what you, where right. you stand. Well, they, they, at first they wouldn't give me the forms to file. And I said, aren't these forms publicly available? Okay, fine. And I, I, so I'm reading through the form. And at one point it says, uh, I certify here. I initial to certify that they have read me the following rules. And I said, oh, can you read me these rules? No. 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 <laughs> so, so you either have to perjure yourself on yeah, a form. Yeah. Well, I finally said, I'm going to just make a note here that you have refused to read them to me. <laughs> and, Why and, would they put that on the form? Well, they, they just didn't, they wouldn't let me file. You know, oh, I was trying gosh. to file with the United Utah Party, and I mean, there are a lot of details here that will probably be boring. Which that's listeners. the name. I mean, that's the name of the party. That's the name of the party, the United, United Utah, Utah party. party. And we had turned in the signatures to become an officially recognized party prior to my filing, but they had not counted the signatures, and they just sort of sat on them for a month. Mm. And uh, so they, w- when we turned them in, they said, "Oh, we're going to do everything we can to make sure you can file tomorrow." But the next day, it was like, you know, no, we we we're not. And, and they sat on them for a month and uh, wouldn't let me file. And it was the hostility was just stunning to me. I didn't understand. Yeah. It felt like I was doing something terrible as I'm going in trying to exercise my constitutional rights to run for office. And uh, we had to take it to court. Do you, do you think it made people nervous? I mean, do you think that they were against it because they had an agenda or were they just nervous about what this may become? What, what do you think was the motivation? You know, I've thought about that over and over again, and I've just concluded that they did it because they thought they could. Mm. It was just it, it, the, the judge, we, we took it to federal court and the judge found for us on every point mm. and was absolutely devastating to the state's case. But the, the main thrust of the state's case against me was... It would be inconvenient to include this new party and this new candidate <laughs> in this election. And we just really didn't want to be bothered with it. Wow. And I mean, that, that was really the extent of it. And, you know, when you have a one-party state, essentially, when the Republicans can do whatever they want, uh, they do whatever they want. And right. what they wanted at that point was, oh, we don't want to be bothered with this. Mm. And, and the judge just ripped them up, down, and sideways and said, this is not an appropriate way, reason to deny someone a spot on the ballot. Yeah. So, well, so I got you. on the so, ballot. So you got on the ballot, but then you had another challenge with trying to get into the debates. Right. It seems, right. Like, it seems like at every turn, because you don't have a D or an R for right. a Democrat or Republican next to your name, it seems like there's a new battle at every step. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, what's really funny is that is that people will throw. I'll read the com. You're never supposed to read the comments of any articles about you. Just, sure, but <laughs> but I do. Of course, I do. And there are some that say, "Well, Jim, everybody's just bending the rules for Jim Bennett here, right, left, and sideways." And I was on a podcast with uh, Utah Policy Daily just this last week, mm. and they said, "Well, you know, you've gotten so many do overs," and I said. Let me push back really hard on that. I I had to claw and scrape my way onto the ballot. I had to fight harder than anybody else running just to get my name on the ballot. Amazing. You know, so the the uphill battle for third party candidacy is is very real. Uh, But uh, yeah, so to get into a debate, you have to meet a certain poll threshold. And they did a poll, and I came short by 0.43%. Which would easily be within the margin of right, error. Right, right. I mean, that, any poll, any poll, for the, for our, especially for our listeners who are not into politics, any poll that is that close would be redone. Or they would say it's inconclusive beca- or it's, you know, because it's within the margin of error. That is too tight for a poll right. to be accredited. Well, well, so we actually looked at the poll 
and found some, some serious methodological flaws with the poll. And when we brought them to their, the attention of the debate commission, to their credit, they said, oh, you're right. Let's do another poll. Oh, wow. Really? So I did another poll and, uh, and I made it. Awesome. And I am the first third-party candidate in history to be included in the official Utah Debate Commission debates. And uh, I really think, you know, as I was talking on the, the, the podcast, well, what, the first question they asked at Utah Policy was, so what is your goal in this race? <laughs> and I sat there and I said, my goal is to be the next congressman of the third district in, in the state of Utah. And, no, 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 really, what's your goal? What, what are you really shooting for? I said, I'm in this to win this. I recognize it's an uphill battle. Absolutely. And yeah. the tri you know, my experience having to sort of give up my tribal loyalty to the Republican Party uh, was was difficult. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's not just I, I don't have to persuade someone just to vote for me that I'm a better candidate. I also have to persuade them to say, well, I've always voted Republican. I'm a little uncomfortable. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable, yeah. not. But, you know, I, I look at, you know, the Republican candidate in this race. He's a, he's a good man. He, I, I've got nothing negative to say about him. Uh, the thing that's been remarkable to me is that he's not saying anything. Mm. He's not talking about anything. He's, he's just a nice guy and, you know, I'm the Republican yeah. and I'm going to win because I'm the Republican. And I think the voters of the 3rd District deserve better than that. I think that they, they're, they're, you know, health care is a huge issue. Immigration is an issue uh, after the Las Vegas massacre. So, so there's me, all kinds me, of gun issues. Let me throw out something that I found fascinating because I follow you on, on social media and I've been following your campaign a bit. You did something very non-traditional political, I would say. Something okay. that politicians just don't do and i will tell you how much it stood out to me and how refreshing i found it and this is I, by the way this show is not here just to endorse jim it's no. to have a conversation with him but one thing that i was really impressed with is after the las vegas shooting on facebook you put out the question what do we do right now every other politician came running out of their corners as to gun control this and mental health that and right, right. on both sides of it. And it was so predictable. And I read through the responses that you got on Facebook of some people coming out of their corners, but also some remarkably thoughtful people who said, Hey, have we thought about this? Right. And you curated a dialogue that was so refreshing that we don't see that in oh, politics. Thank you. you didn't come at it from, Oh, well, here's where my party comes from here's where we stand and we're ready to fight and you were very good with the trollers who wanted to just put out whatever they wanted to spit out but then afterward you did something even more remarkable in my book which is you took all the opinions and you said here are some of the interesting things that people think what do you think about this right that is not something that happens anymore in politics Almost at all. No, I appreciate that. And I, I think that's, that's exactly right. I, you know, anytime anything like this happens, I can tell you everything the Republicans are going to say and everything the Democrats are going right. to say. Right. It's never surprising. It's never surprising. And it's tiresome. And everybody yells at the other side and demonizes the other side. They certainly aren't listening. And, and I, I, I genuinely, one of my friends said, well, what are you pr proposing here? And I said, I'm not proposing anything. I genuinely want to hear some ideas that would be helpful. And I don't think either party is doing that now. But no, you, I thought that was really refreshing. What has surprised you most as you've run? What has surprised me the most? Uh, what has surprised me is, is how much of a hunger there is for a fix to the two-party system. Mm. That doesn't necessarily launch me to victory so much as, as I talked, I mean, one woman came up to me and she said, you know, I've been waiting for you for 30 years. <laughs> uh, not necessarily you, but I'm waiting for this for 30 years. Everybody recognizes that the two-party system is broken. Yeah, the, the tone and tenor of Washington, and I think it's bled, unfortunately, into local politics. Right, sure. It's just gotten to the point where it's, it's almost difficult to process. And you are out there meeting people. I went through, this might surprise even you to hear, but <laughs> just purely based on your Facebook, you have spoken to Kiwanis clubs, Rotary clubs, 
You took part in the world's longest paper chain at BYU. I did indeed. You've been on TV. You've been on radio. You've done two pride festivals, a farmer's market, actually two farmer's markets that I could find. You've done meet the candidate events, the harvest moon hurrah. You've been to football (laughs) games, education associations, and our very own Pleasant Grove Heritage Days. You have been to every festival. It's fun to watch you interact with people. Oh, thank you. And to shake hands and to kind of do the old-fashioned things that we used to expect politicians to do. Not to show up, give a speech, and be ushered out. But you're walking around. It doesn't get much more diverse than the Pleasant Grove Heritage Days and a Pride Festival. Right. And so you're hearing a lot of the I sang at opinions. the Pride Festival. Yes. Uh, what did you sing uh, at the Pride oh, Festival? I, I had a couple of songs. I, I, I write silly songs. And I, wrote, I sang one song that was goofy and one song that was a little more serious. But... Mm. But that, that's another thing that comes across is I think that politicians really want to curate their image. Right. And like you said earlier, here are the rules. You don't seem to follow a lot of those rules. Well, I, it makes you relatable. Well, I mean, I think it allows people to get to know who you really are. Well, I appreciate that very much. It's well, it, it's really been remarkable for me as I go out to all of these events. I'm the only one of the I had a friend of mine saying, I think you're the only one who wants this job. I, I see your signs everywhere. I don't see anybody else's signs. And I see you places. I don't see anybody else anywhere else. And that's great. So, you know, we we don't have the resources that a Republican or a Democrat would have. We mm-hmm. have less money and we don't have that party infrastructure. Uh, our party has been very, very helpful to us, but we're a brand new party. And so we we just don't. So I've got to outwork them. I've got yeah. to get out there. And, and uh, you know, we've been in every county in the state. Uh, and we're doing everything we can to meet as many people as we can and talk to as many people as we can because we think this is important. This is a movement that matters. You also took part in what may be the most important major story to have happened in 100 years in Utah. Right. And that is that you went and bought a Coke at BYU. The first day Coca-Cola a was available. A caffeinated beverage. A caffeinated beverage. BYU. My daughter works at the creamery on 9th. <laughs> And I went in with her and I walked up and I opened up the cabinet and got out a Coca-Cola and I thought, this is history, my friends. <laughs> it's a, it's a, like, like the man landing on the moon. That's right. That's You're right. I wanted to be a part of history. Beverage. So, How does your wife feel about uh, all this, about all the campaign? Uh, my wife is very supportive. My wife has been, you know, she marched in a parade with me in Sandy. She says, I really don't want to do this again. <laughs> but uh, some people have asked her, okay, well, what do you think of all this? And she says, well, I knew his last name when I married him. Yeah. So sure. that's been kind of her response to it. It's been very helpful, I think, that this is a shorter, compressed campaign time frame. Yeah. Uh, I personally don't have the personal resources to be campaigning full time for two years, is what, which is what you would need to right. do. Uh, so this special election created an opportunity where I, I thought, okay, I can commit this time to be able to do this. So, you know, she's been great. My kids have been great. Uh, my daughters have been doing the honk and wave down at BYU, nice. waving the signs, annoying people as they're walking across to get to the football game. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, you do a honk and wave before the game and they're a much better mood <laughs> than after the game. Particularly yeah, BYU I would not want to stand outside of BYU's stadium to try to do anything after a game. Right. right? That would not go right. Over well. well, I'm wearing a BYU t-shirt right yeah. now. Your, your With listeners pride can't hear still. that. With pride, sure. Great. So what, um, obviously, you know, there's always that delicate balance. We, we don't want to interject religion into politics. Right. There's a, a wonderful separation of state that's often misunderstood, but against a religion controlling the, the political process. But as you go forward, what values do you take from your life as a Latter-day Saint and your beliefs? What values are you seeing that would be most effective of being a congressman? Oh, that's a very good question, which means I haven't thought of an answer to it before (laughs) you ask it. Um, You know, the value—one of the things that's been really remarkable is— the value, the, the, the kind of anchor that the church provides in in, a, in an individual's life, is is something that that applies to everything that I do, or that everything that everybody does, and it's it's the most important tribe of which I am a member, 
And one of the things that's interesting is that I am finding people, Republicans, Democrats, I mean, it doesn't, it's on both sides, but that tribal loyalty to some degree is more important to some people mm. than the loyalty to the church. And, and one of the things that was remarkable, again, as seeing my father in his final years was that his connection to the church was so much more important to him than his connection to his party. And the idea that any one party has a mandate from heaven, uh, I think, I, I believe that uh, the leaders of the church would very much like to see Democrats or independents or other people say, you know what, this is not a one party church, one political party church. They read the letter that says we are politically, we, the, the truth can be found in the platforms of, of all parties. And I think that's very true. I, I think that uh, it it's very important that anybody that is interested in politics, no matter what they believe, recognize that that parties and politics don't matter nearly as much as the fundamental truths that, that guide mm. the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's great. It's a great answer. If people want to get involved with you or with the party, how can they find more information? Well, my website is jimbennettforcongress.com. And that's two N's, two T's. Two N's, two T's. You can, Bennett with one T just really bugs me. It's why I can't read Pride and Prejudice. It's, uh, the Bennett's in that only ben have a. one T. Ben A. Yes, that's not yeah. Yeah. That's no. right. That's right. Ben it's A. It's not Ben A. You just have to tell people Bennett. Bennett. Two T's. Yes. JimBennettforCongress.com. The party website is unitedutah.org. But if you can, you can uh, donate to my campaign, you can find out more about what I stand for at my website. And the party also has a, a, a lot of information there. And I will say also, if you're following uh, Jim's campaign on Facebook, he's remarkably responsive on social media. Yeah, a little too responsive, probably. It's it's fantastic. It's refreshing to see. Jim, this has been a great conversation, and uh, what just what a wonderful uh, life you've had. I mean, incredible, the influences in the church and and in the government, and the fact that you're carrying all these things forward is awesome. We're going to close with uh, the final question that we ask every one of our guests and that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Um, it means it means everything to me, both spiritually and practically. Um, in, in 2011, uh, my my oldest daughter uh, was in a skiing accident. Uh, she took a wrong turn down Solitude Mountain and tumbled head over heels down the side of the mountain for 300 yards and suffered a burst compression fracture to her spine, which left her partially paralyzed for the rest of her life. And, uh, you know, I, I have always been, you know, in terms of the theology of the church and the teachings of the church, uh, those have always been, uh, close to my heart. But after my daughter was injured, uh, the entire ward rallied around us and they came in and cleaned our house and fixed it up. And uh, they installed handicap railings in our stairway. Uh, they, they just went above and beyond. And I saw for the first time just what power the church has on a practical level. And uh, I, I realized then that uh, I'm not going through this life without a net. That there are people in the church who are willing to do everything they can to serve, to serve me and to serve others. And, you know, you see the influence of the Lord in, in practical terms when you're in those kinds of circumstances. And, and uh, so, so I, I, I feel tremendous loyalty to the church on so many levels, uh, but th- this, is, this is the way, that I think is the most powerful way to be able to actually see the hand of God in your life. When you see other people who are able to work to be able to bless the lives of others, you see, you see the influence of, of the Lord and of the Spirit and the church has allowed me to draw closer to my Savior and has allowed me that connection to my Savior and a connection to other people uh, in, in a practical way that, uh, that has blessed my life in ways that I can never repay. Mm. Jim, that's a be- beautiful sentiment, beautiful thought. Well, Jim, uh, you are our potential congressman. Which is exciting. You're a great writer, a great family man. You've got an incredible lineage and so much, so much to be proud of. And uh, I think you're just a tremendous credit 
to our church. And we're so glad that we got to join you for uh, a little bit of time. And thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Sean, this has been more fun than it had any right to be. I appreciate this opportunity very much. Thank you. Thank you. My special thanks to Jim Bennett for coming on the show. He is such a fun, dynamic, and and just really bright guy. I do want to make it clear that uh, we're not endorsing any candidates for from the point of view of the show. Um, we don't take any political stances on the show officially, but uh, Jim is really, really a great, great guy. We appreciate him coming on so much. This week in my latter-day life, um, I was... Out of town, I took two of my sons kind of on a spur-of-the-moment weekend trip to Disneyland, which we do a lot. I love Disneyland. I live in Utah, but I'm actually an annual pass holder because I just have so much fun there, and I love taking my kids there. And we were there for the weekend, and we were in line for the Jungle Cruise. The Jungle Cruise, if you haven't been to Disneyland or Disney World or haven't seen it before, uh, it's a boat ride, and you get on the dock, you step down into a boat, and it's really funny. There are animatronic uh, animals throughout, and the boy, the the tour guides are so much fun. We really enjoy it, and we were behind. Uh, we were in line behind this family uh, in front of us. There were about nine of them. They were all adults, and uh, we got to talking to them a little bit. This is the nicest. They were um, uh, a Polynesian family, brothers and sisters, and parents and cousins, and just the the most fun, nicest people. And uh, they had planned this kind of family reunion kind of a thing to get together at Disneyland. And one of the members of their party, uh, she, had, um, she was in a wheelchair. And you could tell uh, that she didn't have a lot of control over her arms uh, and certainly not of, of her legs. And um, it appeared, I, I'm not a medical professional, but some type of palsy maybe. Uh, that she was uh, affected by. And, and so the the skipper, the, the guy who's in charge of the boats, came over and, and he said, so uh, when we go to load her on, you know, we have a special loading area for the, the wheelchairs or whatever you need. And the two of the guys that were there, turned out they were brothers, they were big dudes. <laughs> These guys were very large, very strong guys. I mean, muscle. Like when I say big guys, I mean, solid muscle. And both of them kind of waved him off and said, no, no, we're good. And he said, well, we've got, you know, some special ways we can get her in or, you know, let me tell you what can help. And they said, no, no, we're good. And they, uh, when it was their turn to go, the boat was there, they wheeled her over and uh, one brother stepped down into the boat. Uh, the rest of the family got in the boat first. Then one brother stepped into the boat. The other brother reached down and uh, lifted this this sweet girl up into his arms, handed her off to his brother. His brother then set her down onto one of the benches where there were two of the women who were right there next to her to hold her up and uh, to brace her in the back. And they just had a whole system. The one brother put the wheelchair away, climbed in the boat, and they were off. And it was it was just so well orchestrated. Like, you could tell they had done this many, many times. And I don't know why, but I was so touched by seeing the amount of love. Wow, <laughs> didn't mean to get emotional. But seeing the amount of love that these awesome men showed for a family member, I don't know if it was her, their sister, cousin, or who it was, but it was so inspiring. And I sat and I thought to myself, you know, in this day and age, we do so much by text or by Facebook or by some kind of messenger, or Instagram or Twitter, or whatever it is. And we kind of have lost too often that physical and personal touch and what it means to actually lift somebody up. We talk about lifting people up all the time. And sometimes a few kind words are enough. Sometimes it's just not. And I know I fall victim sometimes to getting so busy and and I'm in the middle of my routine when a neighbor needs help or someone maybe in my quorum or from my ward. and and Or maybe it's a member of my own family. Maybe it's just my kids or my wife who needs help. And I get so focused on myself that I don't lift up others. The saddest part is sometimes I might be planning a lesson or working on the podcast or doing something like, 
you know, whatever it is. I might be in the middle of scripture study reading about how I should be more Christ-like, then frustrated that one of my kids needs me. How dare you interrupt my scripture study? (laughs) I'm trying to learn how to be more Christ-like. Get away from me. We need to lift up others the way that these two brothers lifted up this sweet, sweet young girl. I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful because sometimes we also feel powerless. I know with so many major things going on in the world, we feel like, how do I change things? I can't help in places where there have been uh, recent flooding or where there have been shootings or other things. But you know what we can do? We can help those around us. And if we will all just take a few minutes and lift someone up, uh, boy, we will change the world. So thankful for them. And that's what's going on in my Latter-day life this week. And that's really it for the show, folks. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in every week. Next week, we have got such a dynamite guest. I'm super, super excited for next week's conversation. If you have any thoughts about the shows, anything that bothers you, I'd love to hear that too. Fortunately, all the emails we've gotten have been very positive. Please send me an email. I always answer them. I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. There are complete show notes at latterdaylives.com. So if you want to dig in on anything we talked about today in the show, there will be notes there and you can click right through and, and there's references for everything. If you want to follow us on social media, we love it. On Twitter, we're Latterday underscore lives. Facebook is facebook.com slash Latterday Lives podcast. And on Instagram, ladder underscore day underscore lives. Uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, if you're looking for some other way to listen to it, or you have friends who want to listen to it, all the episodes are available and can be streamed from our website, which is latterdaylives.com. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Play Music, uh, Stitcher, Player FM, pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast. That's where we are. So again, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to seeing you next week. And until then, please keep in mind, there's a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. 